I want you to get your um, learning cap on tonight, your thinking cap, and we're going to work with this worksheet in the 8th chapter of the book of Acts. This is a book called Fox Book of Martyrs, and the preface of this book begins like this. When one recollects that until the appearance of the Pilgrim's Progress, the common people had almost no other reading matter except the Bible and Fox Book of Martyrs, we can understand the deep impression that this book produced and how it served to mold the national character. Those who could read for themselves learned the full details of all the atrocities performed on the Protestant reformers. The illiterate could see the rude illustrations of the various instruments of torture, the rack, the gridiron, the boiling oil, and then the holy ones breathing out their souls amid the flames. Take a people just awakening to a new intellectual and religious life, let several generations of them from childhood to old age pore over such a book and its stories become traditions as individual and almost as potent as songs and customs on a nation's life. This book traces the persecution, the horrible suffering of the, of the church. And it was chained to every pulpit in every church in England, along with the Bible. It is a deep and profound book. And although it describes in terrible detail the horrible suffering of the church, it also points out that in the midst of that suffering, daily the church increased. So that the blood of the martyrs literally became water that caused the church to flourish and prosper. Now, you and I know nothing about persecution. Oh, somebody might uh, uh, ridicule us at school if we try to live for the Lord, and sometimes that happens. And sometimes some guy might slam dunk us down at the office, you know, if he wants to kind of say a, a, a kind of a jeering word about religious fanaticism. But you and I know nothing about persecution. And it is persecution that moves one from the realm of theory to the realm of reality. We can talk about the grace of God to sustain us and to assist us and to buoy us and to give us strength. But we do not know that in reality unless we've been in the midst of a trial unless we've known some kind of suffering. And then that suffering, that, that trial, that persecution, moves us from the realm of theory to the realm of reality. It is also persecution that discloses the difference between the true and the phony. We've never known, we've never known persecution. So that when we study the book of Acts and we trace the history of the church, it's like tracing a wounded animal in the snow. You follow that animal, you trace him by the blotches of blood in the snow, and you can trace the church through the book of Acts by the blotches of blood on the pages of history. And tonight we want to look at the first murder, the first crime of passion, the first time the church really experienced martyrdom. 
And so I want you to look at verse 59 of chapter 7 before we get to chapter 8. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell, and the literal Greek translation is, he fell on sleep. Now I want to say three things about the death of this man. First of all, it reveals the supremacy of the spiritual. Jesus had already said, Fear not them who are able to destroy the body, but, and are not able to do and are able to do more, no more after that. Fear not them who are only able to destroy the body, and no more after that. I tried to say this morning that tomorrows belong to God's people. Um, we may lose today, but tomorrow is ours. Uh, what difference does it make that, that uh, the contemporaries of Jesus rejected Him, and the Romans despised Him, and... And a cruel cross marked the end of his earthly life today. Tomorrow he conquers the world. There is the supremacy of the spiritual. Fear not him who is able only to destroy the body. I think a second thing it, 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 it suggests, and that is that in death God's people see the unseen. And the scripture in the context of his death says that he saw heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now when Jesus died, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, symbolical of his finished work. But when he saw Stephen stoned, he stood up. And some have suggested that he stood there in honor of this martyr, this saintly man, and he was saying, it's finished now, come on up. Nobody else saw it but Stephen. In death, God's people see the unseen. And I think thirdly, this death witnessed to the grace of God. It witnessed to the grace of God in two ways, in His ability to forgive those who stoned Him, who, who, who sinned against Him. I got up early this morning and was doing my quiet time, and I was reading in the book of Luke, and it says, it said in my quiet time passage reading, it said, you forgive a man if he... If he sins against you, if he does you wrong, seven times a day you keep on forgiving him. Someone was in my office recently and they were saying, I don't know how God keeps on forgiving us when we keep on doing the same thing. Well, we know he does because he told us to. How could Stephen forgive such a crime against him? Because he knew the Lord. It witnessed to the grace of God. And it witnessed to the grace of God in his confidence that God would pardon this crime. And there was another man standing nearby, and uh, you'll follow your notes, if you will, your outline. There was another person standing nearby. His name was Saul. Now, what Eichmann was to the Jews, what Hitler was to the Jews, Saul of Tarsus was to the Christians. And he was absolutely convinced that these men were, were perpetrating a crime against the nation. They concocted this story about the resurrection of Jesus, and he had zeal to persecute and put the church out. And he was standing in the shadows, receiving the coats of those who stoned him. And there's this face among the crowds, watching Stephen's death, and he never got over it. And the Scripture says in verse 2 of chapter, chapter 8, And on that day a great persecution arose 
against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. That's the saint's grief. Now, when I read that at the first reading, I was somewhat confused by it because as I have read church history, I, 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 I have drawn the conclusion that one of the things that marked the Christians out from the pagans were, was their confidence in death. Their, uh, in fact, one historian said that they would go on their way rejoicing as they carried these bodies to the tombs, to the graves. They looked triumphantly down the red raw throat of death. But it says here that they set up loud lamentation over him. And as I look back over that and try to find what was involved in that, what did that mean? It's a, uh, somehow God communicated this to me, that there are some things that strike to the very depths of a man's being. There are some sorrows that just kind of, kind of erupt out of a man. He can't keep quiet. There are some crimes, there are some heartaches that are so great that a man must lament. And this is one of them. This is a crime of passion. Here was this saintly man, this godly man, this layman in the church, and he was being put to death, the first martyr. Now, there are three, I believe, there are three characteristics of true evangelism. An evangelism that is predicted by Christ in Acts 1.8 when He said, You shall be my witnesses, as we sang this morning, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. But at the very beginning, they were not scattered out. The evangelism was taking place only in Jerusalem. The center of attention was there. And so God brought persecution into the... God permitted persecution to come to the church, and by it He scattered the church and caused that church to go everywhere with the gospel. It's an interesting word in the Greek. That word scattered, it's the picture of one going with seeds in his hand and scattering them to, to, to sow and to plant. And so with the persecution, all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. And so in that persecution, God scattered the church like seed to plant them out in the world with the gospel. And there are three characteristics of true evangelism. Now, I want especially our young people to hear this because there are a lot of goofy things being done in the name of religion, and there are a lot of goofy people out there who are doing these goofy things in the name of religion. And I'm convinced that there are three characteristics of true evangelism, and you can tell what is true and genuine evangelism, what is true and genuine faith. Number one, verses four and five. In true evangelism, there is the centrality of Jesus Christ in the message. There is the centrality of Jesus Christ in the message. He went, he said, preaching the Word, and then the next verse it says that He came and proclaimed Christ to them. Central to the message of true evangelism is Jesus Christ. Now hear me well. Any message that has any other thing central to it than Jesus is suspect to say the best. Whether that's the gifts of the Spirit tongues and healing, 
whether it is baptism or church membership or good works, or whether it's some of these strange things that are being taught by strange people, or whether it's just biblical, quote, orthodoxy that some of our, quote, conservatives are talking about. If there is any message that is being preached that does not have Jesus Christ as central, it is suspect to say the best. As a matter of fact, I want to go one more and say it is heresy. True evangelism has Jesus Christ as center to it. It proclaims Jesus. Secondly, the dynamic power of Christ is always present upon that message. Verses 6 and 7. The dynamic power of Christ is always present upon that message. Now, when he preached Jesus Christ, he proclaimed the word. Great signs and wonders began to be performed. Now, I want want you to notice and hang to this. Get this, please. You don't have to preach healing. You preach Jesus Christ and healing will be the result of that. You don't have to preach gifts. You preach Jesus Christ and the gifts will be the secondary result of that message. But I'm convinced of this. You let Jesus Christ become the supreme in life and witness and word and there will be attendant to that witness the power of God. Um, I just wonder what would happen if in our lives for this one week in everything we did, in everything we studied, in everything we saw, in everything we we practiced, we had Jesus Christ as center, central to our life was Jesus Christ. I wonder what would happen when we gathered on Sunday morning to worship. There would be signs and wonders. It always happens. When Jesus Christ is made central in your life or your message or in the church, signs and wonders are the direct result of that. The attendant power of Christ. Secondly, or thirdly. Yes, I'm I'm further behind than I thought. Third, verse 8 suggests that in true evangelism, there is always the presence of contagious joy. And it says in verse 8 that the whole town was rejoicing. They laughed a lot. They laughed a lot. David Redding has a book entitled, Jesus Makes Me Laugh. And one of the chapters in that book is titled this, He's Crazy About You. True evangelism has as its heart Jesus Christ and the result of that centrality of message and that centrality of life is that there is contagious joy. That seems kind of strange. That in verse 3 it talks about a loud lamentation that they directed toward God in behalf of Stephen who was stoned. And in verse By verse 8, they're already rejoicing. Well, that's just the difference God makes in life. It's a joy that is not not associated, that is not related to uh, outward circumstances or dependent upon outward circumstances. It's a joy that comes as the result of the centrality of Christ. I don't know who did this, but I I said on Wednesday night, one Wednesday night, I I, I would love to see some kind of a portrait of... uh, of, uh, of Jesus with a smile on his face. And, and somebody painted me one of these, some anonymous author, uh, artist. And I went in my office one day and there was this big picture. 
Now, I'm not going to make a comment about the skill of this uh, artist, but there was this Christ with this huge smile on his face. And his little note, it said, you said you wanted to see a picture with Jesus of Jesus with a smile. And I took that picture and I thought to myself, you know, uh, you know, it, it almost, it, 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 uh, it didn't even look right. You know, it's been, I've never seen one before. I think that our idea of the Christian life is this sad, somber, serious note. Rejoice! And again I say rejoice. It's all right for you to, you know, to, to be happy. Now there are five characteristics of a phony faith, of a false faith, beginning at verse 9. Five characteristics of a false faith. Number one. A false faith exalts a person other than Jesus. I want to I read this. Now there was a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria. Look, claiming, underline that, claiming to be someone great. Who was claiming to be someone great? He was. A false faith always exalts a person. Alexander Wythe, a great uh, preacher of the turn of this century, said, don't look in the papers to see what they're saying about you. Starve this phony that's inside of you. Um, Exalting a person. Anytime you find that form of religion that exalts somebody, some person other than Christ. It's a false religion. It's a false faith. And there's a heap of them. And uh, you know, sometimes when I get carried away, I almost, almost want to name names, but I better, I, better not want, I better not get into that. It just really bothers me to turn on um, the television set sometime and see the exalting of my man. Um, secondly, a false faith draws a following based on fleshly attraction. Verse 10. It draws a following based on fleshly attraction. Now with your New Testament at hand, I want you just to take a little trip to the right and let's go to Second, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Reminds me of the story of the uh, seminarian who was going to preach in his hometown one Sunday. He was just right back from seminary, just done his work on his Ph.D. felt so smart. He had his little, he had his manuscript. He was going to really, he was really going to astound them. He was walking down the street one Saturday, after, the Saturday afternoon before he was to preach on Sunday. One of the little saints in the church stopped him on the street corner and said, You're preaching for us tomorrow. I can't wait 
I can't wait to hear you. Well, he said, I, yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. She said, don't forget, say a good word for Jesus. He had to go home and change the whole deal. He had to tear up the manuscript. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you, look, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. I didn't come to sweep you off your feet, he said. Some people have drawn a picture of Paul as one of the most grotesque-looking men with a hunchback. I have a feeling that if he were present today, he had not pastor any large churches. He was a repulsive-looking man, according to the biographers of this man. It didn't matter to him. He didn't come with a message that sought a following on the basis of a fleshly attraction. That's a mistake, friend. That's a big mistake came to preach Jesus. There's a third characteristic of a false faith. Now hear this. It exercises a counterfeit power. Verse 11. It exercises a counterfeit power. Now if you'll look at verse 9 and verse 10, it says that they were all giving attention to Him. And verse 11 it says, and they were giving Him attention because He had for a long time astonished them with His magic arts. Now He wasn't just, uh, he wasn't just uh, fooling around. He had magical power. He was practicing the black arts. And He was doing some things that were that were unexplainable. He had a supernatural power, but the power was not of God. Now now remember, folks, not all the supernatural things that happen are things that God does. Satan has supernatural power too. And remember, remember that Satan can heal too. Remember that there is a black man, there is a power that is of the demonic world as well as of the heavenly world. And we need to test these spirits. We need to try these spirits, say, says the word. Is this really of God or is it a counterfeit power? And what was taking place in this phenomena world was that he was having a counterfeit power. But Christ was not central and His message was not based on the Word. Fourth, a counterfeit faith goes through religious motions for the wrong motives. Now verse 13 says that Simon believed and he was baptized as the result of his faith. But I'm going to say, and I don't want you to say, well, now, wait a minute, you're judging this man unfairly. I want you to wait till you get, we get to the end of this passage. The, the belief that he had was an intellectual assent. It was an intellectual belief. It wasn't the kind of saving faith that transforms one. It was a kind of a, men, a mental acceptance of this one for the wrong motives. 
it's possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And fifthly, a false faith is preoccupied with the material rather than the spiritual. A false faith, a false evangelism wants to build a system or a program that will just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so he was interested in, in, in the Holy Spirit and bringing the Holy Spirit in order that he might bring to himself power and prestige. It was Denny who said, One cannot at the same time, one and the same time, show that he is clever and that Christ is wonderful. His preoccupation was with the material rather than the spiritual. And he was confronted by the pure. And this is what Simon Peter said to him. Just look at that and then we're through. Verse 20 and following. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Now there's another way to say that. You and your silver, you know, you know what to do. Well, you, you and your silver perish. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. He said two things. He said, first, you can't bring a gift to God. You can't buy God. There are some things that money cannot buy. There are some things that cannot earn God's approval or favor. You can't bring a gift. There is nothing you can do that will earn His favor. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And no one can really come to God until he understands that he has nothing to offer God except himself. And he brings nothing to God. The second thing he said to him was, you don't have a gift. He said, your heart is not right before God. And it seems to me that of all the things that could be said about this whole matter, that's the most important thing. Is your heart right before God? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you are, where you stand, what your position, what you claim, what you say, what power you demonstrate. The important thing is, is this, is your heart right before God? And God will not accept any gift until the heart is right. For the gift is determined by the condition of the man who brings it. And look at verses 23 and 24. He said, therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Now, folks, I don't know whether you understand what this word 
is saying or not, this is serious business. Repent of this wickedness. What wickedness? The wrong intention of the heart. Repent of this and pray the Lord, if it's possible, forgive me of this wrong intention of my heart. For when God looks at us, He looks past the veneer, and He looks past the surface, and He looks past the phoniness, and He gets right where we are. He looks at the heart and its intention and its motive. Is your heart right before God? Let's pray together. Father, search us and know our heart. Try us. See if there be any wicked way within us. See if there be any intention of the heart that is wrong. Wash us thoroughly, thoroughly with hyssop. Cleanse us that we might be whiter than snow. Help us, Father, to understand the difference between the true and the phony. Help us to confront the question now, is Jesus Christ really central? This is my prayer, in Jesus' name, for His sake. Now, our invitations are like this. We invite people first to come and receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior. The theme of this book, the theme of our song, the theme of our church is that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. Have you ever trusted Him for your salvation? The second invitation is for Christian people to respond to God's leadership concerning church membership and the Christian walk. And we'll sing, I have decided to follow Jesus, a couple of stanzas. And we'll invite you to say publicly, I have decided to follow Jesus. As we stand to sing, come.